is a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream With Mind and Heart, every Disney movie ever. I'm Ryan Silberstein and with me is... Megan Bojarski. In this episode, we will follow Walt and company down to South America at the behest of the State Department and bring back a mixed bag of ideas for Disney's shortest ever feature film. And just a quick disclaimer before we get into it, neither Megan nor I are remotely fluent, if at all knowledgeable, about Spanish or Portuguese. So we apologize in advance for any particularly egregious pronunciations, but we will we will do our best in an honest way and feel free to write in and correct us for what we've gotten horribly wrong, but we're, we're trying. <laughs> so for this episode, we're going to be working with saludos amigos, which means welcome friends or greetings friends in Spanish, which is actually our first Disney movie that is completely original content or more or less completely original content. So we're going to have an interesting kind of story time going on here for the conception. So unlike the ones before, there wasn't an old uh, fairy tale. There wasn't a fairly recent book to base this on. This had a lot to do with the history of the time and the brimming of World War II that was going on in the 1940s. So one of the big things that was going on is that while we normally think of World War II as being primarily European, and then of course Asian with the Japanese side of it, South America actually had a fairly significant role in it, at least as a fear tactic. There were a lot of connections brimming specifically between Nazi Germany and Argentina, and there were a lot of worries that that was going to spread. And while the US felt very safe to kind of stay out of the war while it was all on the other side of the world, they really did not like the idea of the Axis powers gaining a foothold in Latin and South America. So they decided that they were going to do something about it. And that's kind of where this project starts off. So in 1940, Nelson Rockefeller wrote to President Roosevelt, and he brought up this concern and was listened to, which is kind of a, a thing that only happens when you have the right name and the right money, I guess. But Roosevelt said, you're right, this is a concern. Let's create the Office for the Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs, which basically was just saying, let's have somebody keep an eye on South America and Central America and make sure they're not too dangerous. And this kind of grew into a very weird propaganda mission that we don't talk about too much with World War II, where rather than just kind of mocking the Germans and the Japanese, we were really trying to build relations, at least to some extent, with South and Central America. Yeah, that's right, kids. You didn't realize that the Monroe Doctrine was going to come up on this Disney podcast. <laughs> but but here we are. And all through our history as a country, and even to this day, there is still, or I forget the, the current name of 
the incarnation behind this idea, but there is still an organization. I think it's the Association of American States or something like that. There's a big building in Washington, D.C. that has all of the North and South American countries listed on it. And it's, you know, again, it's an organization dedicated to try to create ties and trade between all of the countries on our side of the world. And in addition to the political angle, Hollywood also saw this as an opportunity because, again, as we talked about with Pinocchio and especially with Dumbo and Bambi, the European market for films had was gone basically by this point because once the war actually started, people were not obviously not going to movies in most of, if not all of Europe at this time. And so the box office there, which was a reliable source of like bonus income for Hollywood, had gone away. And Hollywood saw South America, particularly because Carmen Miranda had come to the United States in recent years and become a popular figure in her own right. If you don't know the name Carmen Miranda, you certainly know her fruit hat was her her signature in American movies. Chiquita Banana logo is based on her. She was a huge star. And there was this kind of interesting, what, what I didn't put together was there was this sort of, I don't know, like every once in a while, other parts of the world become trendy. Like the, the 80s had this whole thing with Australia and Crocodile Dundee, and we got like mm-hmm. Outback Statehouse out of it. And so there was this sort of Latin American cultural interest that was sort of brewing at the time that dovetailed right into World War II and the need, at least as perceived by Rockefeller, to create this tie between North and South America. And this was something that really needed to be kind of fostered, because up until that point, everything was really racist and stereotypical. For the most part, before this kind of rise of popularity, If you had any kind of Latino populations featured, it was very stereotypical. I mean, we kind of get a complex version of that with I Love Lucy, but other than that, pretty much everything was pretty awful, which meant that a lot of people in South America didn't particularly like the US and specifically Hollywood, and a lot of people in the US just didn't really see South America as a viable source of civilization. We had a very kind of us-centric view of the world. And so Rockefeller decided that a really important way to do this was two-part. So as for getting South America and Central America to like us, they said, okay, well, who do they like? And the answer was Disney, and specifically Donald Duck. And on the other side, he said, okay, how do we get, you know, U.S. citizens to appreciate Latin America? And he decided that once again, Hollywood and films were kind of the way to do it. So his big push here was to do a goodwill tour where Disney and between 15 and 20 members of the Disney studio essentially just toured through South America and, as this movie is part of, decided to make films about what they saw there and really just kind of creating this connection. One of the biggest things here, going back to the money, Disney was losing money just hand over fist. They had started doing better with things like Dumbo because they could put very little money into it. But Rockefeller created a great offer where he agreed to underwrite any films about Latin America and guaranteed that if the movies failed, the U.S. government would pay for it. So essentially, I mean, it's terrible, but World War II pretty much saved Disney because they were able to produce these movies on the U.S. government's dime. So what they did was, on the Goodwill tour, 
Disney asked the State Department to fund a film project. Originally, they agreed to underwrite the cost for four shorts, but then they kind of made this decision, partially through money, partially through just continuity, that they were going to put them together into one film, and they sliced live action and the actual sketches into it. And so this was kind of a, a combo job that they threw together to essentially answer the call for connection between North and South America. And the timing, you know, for Disney, like you said, couldn't have been more right because obviously, as we've talked about, this comes also in the midst of the animator strike. And so Disney gets to leave during what is probably the worst of the animator strike with some of his closest collaborators, the people he he appreciated most and were sort of his inner circle. And then he gets free money from the government to make sure that these movies, you know, don't lose money at least. And so there was a, you know, a guaranteed piece of it. And this tour lasted a few months. I, I keep trying to put myself, especially in researching this movie in particular, I keep trying to remind myself of the way the world was at this time. Like, now, like, I could book a flight to Rio de Janeiro tomorrow and get there in, like, two days at the most. But, like, you know, this is before commercial flight is really a thing. And, you know, even getting to South America, they flew from from California to Nashville to Miami and then to South America. Like, it was a long journey to get there, and they stayed there for a few months. Uh, they actually had a lot of material, and they, you know, they they did spend a lot of time in South America, gathering material for the movies that they would make. There's a lot of sketches that were done. You know, they would just the the artists would just sit around and sketch street scenes, and some of those sketches are in this movie, and there's even more of them in the documentary that we're going to talk about a little later, Walt and El Grupo, which sort of gives a bit of the behind the scenes about the tour itself. And I just think it's a really, I mean, it sounds like a great time, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that you need to keep in mind as we do kind of our history breaks here is that we're moving chronologically as though these were all distinct eras. But these are all stacked on top of each other. So you've got to keep in mind that there are rising tensions in the U.S. There are people about to be enlisted for war. There is the strike going on. It's a very good time to just get out of the country and essentially go on vacation for several months and just be able to explore. And there were kind of two major things that came out of this tour that kind of can be seen in this film. So the first one, and the biggest one, is that this group was pretty much completely isolated from what was going on with the rest of the company. They weren't caught up in all of the tensions, for the most part, of the strike. They weren't caught up in the terror of, are we joining the war or not? They were kind of having a party, and that group, who were called El Grupo, in a bit of uh, broken Spanish, essentially got to just thrive creatively which created some of these, some better than others, short animations about these areas that they visited. The other kind of big thing to come out of it, which we'll talk about a lot more in the future, is Mary Blair. And I'm going to give just a short story about her before we move forward. So Mary Blair was an artist. Her husband worked for Disney. She did not. She didn't like her job. She didn't feel like she was appreciated. So she got her husband to get her work at Disney. She got work there. She did not feel appreciated. She did not feel like her creativity was allowed to kind of run free. 
because as we've discussed before, there were so many different limitations for women specifically in the company. So she quit. And about three days later, her, her husband was invited to go tour South America with Walt, and she was supposed to stay home. And she did not like that idea. That sounded boring and frustrating, and she really regretted her decision. And so her husband said, look, Walt's a nice guy. You didn't, you know, you didn't burn your bridges when you left. So why don't you just ask him if you can come back? And shockingly, Walt let her. So she, she technically quit for like six days and then jumped back in and got to be the only woman who was on this tour. And while she was there, she absolutely thrived. Her creativity boomed. So she is really significant to kind of some of the most beautiful artwork in this movie. And her name will become very important in Disney history in the future. Although her husband may have had the position to begin with, by the end of this vacation, and specifically this movie, she was pretty much going to be one of Walt's big favorites alongside the growing group that would become the Nine Old Men. So we're starting to really get our core figures building together in this kind of odd interlude in the Disney story. And one more note about timeline that I think is important to keep in mind is that the the tour of South America happened in early 1941. This movie doesn't come out until late 1942 and in the U.S. until 1943 when the U.S. is already in the war. But the the tour itself happened months prior to Pearl Harbor. So that, that's just also a, an important timeline because it, it, it was... I had to like specifically nail down dates in my head to keep mm -hmm. keep all this straight. So I want to, for you guys out there listening, I want to make sure that you're also following along on that timeline. And then secondly, if I have a favorite person from the history of the Disney company, it might be Mary Blair. Uh, yeah. So we will certainly be talking about her a lot. I love her art style. Her impact is massive in ways that most people don't even know. She's like an invisible genius in a lot of ways. And some of the most iconic things to come out of Disney, especially after the war, you know, it, she is responsible for the design of It's a Small World. Like that is that is Mary Blair front to back. And so we'll be talking about her more as we as we go through. But I'm glad that we're making sure to mention that this is where she really starts to find herself and find her art style and also find Walt's favor, which is equally important, if not more important to her career. We've talked over the last several weeks about all of these elements of what makes Disney Disney. And we're really at this stage in these films that most people don't find super kind of iconic. We're starting to see those final building blocks really cementing. And uh, ironically, a lot of those come down to the tour. Basically, everyone who went on the tours jobs were safe when they got back. That was not true for pretty much anybody else in the in the company. And so they were really kind of the foundations of what's going to come next. So a lot of this comes down to how successful this was. They had originally created the four shorts. And then essentially the U.S. government said, mm, then people are only going to care about the one country and they're not going to learn about South America as a monolith, which might have been a better thing. And so the U.S. government, along with Disney, made the decision to put them all together, and then to add in these live-action bits, which were actually thrown in so late that the shot we see at the beginning of the group boarding the plane 
was actually filmed after they returned, and the lore says that it was literally just filmed in the parking lot of the studio. So a lot of the kind of narrative flow of this comes down to, we had sketches, and then we had to fill in the gaps, so here's the way we did that. Which makes this a really interesting film, kind of in between, you know, a short and a feature, which we can definitely see with the length here. And part of the development of this is really interesting in part because it's this relatively small group that goes to South America with Walt. They come back. They have, they're overflowing with ideas. They have tons of things they want to do. But essentially, the story department was basically almost entirely cut in the post-strike layoffs. You know, and then most of the artists who were left were not the people who had gone to South America. And so there wasn't as much passion within, you know, like we saw in Fantasia where they kind of broke up the animators into different groups that were working on the different segments of that movie. Here you had the people sort of trying to drive the project with their passion because they had been there and, and seen some of the things that they wanted to depict. But the most of the people working on this movie had not been on the South American trip and only had the photographs and stories. And, you know, I'm sure we've all been there at work. Like somebody goes on like an amazing vacation after like a week of them talking about it. You're like, okay, that's that's enough. You can stop now. <laughs> we all know you had a great time. And so I think that's part of why some of the things in here aren't up to the quality of even some of the shorts that we've discussed, you know, in our very first episode. But it it is, again, like like Megan said, really important to the overall development of of Disney and what's going to come next. You know, we talked, we mentioned Mary Blair. She goes on to work on Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan extensively. The nine old men are heavily involved in this. That's uh, Milk Call, Wooly uh, Reitherman, Ward Kimball, Frank Thomas, and Les Clark were also all, all involved as animators. And of that, only Frank Thomas, he, he was the only animator to go on the trip. They called him the Lawrence Olivier of animation because he just had this gift for bringing characters to life in a way that even other animators were kind of jealous of or, or couldn't quite crack the way that he was able to do that. And again, it's, it's, you know, we call them the nine old men that becomes a moniker later when they are actually a little bit older. And there's a new generation of animators kind of being brought in to learn from them. But Frank Thomas turns 29 on this trip. And I think that's the other thing that's like so mind blowing about going back and following these movies in chronological order and seeing the development and so just how young all of these people were and how like they really had that to quote another disney movie there's no rule this is a dog can't play basketball <laughs> and so like <laughs> you know they're they're not bound by convention because they really are inventing this art form still even you know um, even what's five years six years after snow white they're really still trying to figure out how to do animation at this scale one of the things that's kind of hard to keep in mind here is that it really is still so new. I mean, again, this is all a very squished together timeline, despite us kind of doing them as concrete elements. So everything was so new. They were trying so many things and some things worked and some things didn't, sometimes because of passion and talent and sometimes just because of money and circumstance. Again, 1941 and 1940 were huge years for the company, causing tension inside of the company, losing money, having the strife. And so we see kind of the death or delay of some parts of the Disney company while we see the rise of what becomes kind of iconic in so many different ways. For instance, there were many projects that they had begun in the aftermath of Snow White 
that were kind of neglected through the strike. And then once the strike ended, more or less, they were told, we have the money and the people to do what the government wants us to do. And that's about it. And so a lot of things were neglected. That's just fascinating to know already existed. So this is my little tangent that I just needed to talk about. Mary Blair's first major work was designing a dog for a project called Lady. I think you can all recognize that as Lady and the Tramp. Mary Goodrich has been working on a version of Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen, which would, of course, become Frozen nearly a hundred years later. Bianca Magili was working on versions of Cinderella and Peter Pan in 1940. Unfortunately, she was then fired that same year without being told. She, I believe, took a sick day, came back, and there was someone else in her office. So we're really seeing this kind of uncertainty and major change going on in the studio. 1941, Ethel Kulsar wrote a story treatment based on The Little Mermaid, which Sylvia Holland then wrote a full script for during the strikes. Again, it would be about 50 years before that would actually come into fruition. And ironically enough, on December 7th, 1941, a date that you might know uh, has a bit of infamy to it, Walt Disney actually had a story meeting scheduled to finally make a full animated adaptation of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And then Pearl Harbor happened. So we see there really is all of this creativity going on with kind of the first era of the Disney employees. And then because of the war and because of financial situations, so much of that was shelved. And, and really, just look very closely at the reluctant dragon and you will see a shocking number of things that you will not see again for a couple of decades. They had so much ready that then had to kind of be pushed aside. So some of those creative ideas might have flown in a little bit into what eventually became kind of the war era. It's fascinating to see that like Leading the Tramp doesn't come out till 1955. You know, Cinderella, I think is 1950. Peter Pan is in between those two. And so there are things that they come back and pick up. But when we eventually get to The Little Mermaid, it'll be interesting to see what we can dig up about this original script and how much of that carries through. And I would be surprised if, you know, even a I, I would be surprised if in 1941 there was like a headstrong teenager kind of lead character in The Little Mermaid. But I, I'm very curious uh, when we get there to see how much of that actually does carry through. And you're right, there's so much that, you know, gets put on the shelf. Again, we're going to talk about the war's impact directly on the studio in our episode next week. But, you know, this was a project that Saludos Amigos and the Three Caballeros only happened because they were because the government was financing them and had already agreed to do it. And if not, whatever they had been working on would have been probably been shelved anyway, because of all Disney's relationship with the the propaganda machine of the, the United States as a way to keep the company alive, essentially. And a lot of these things aren't things we necessarily know as featured films, but I think most people can probably think of at least a couple of the shorts that were really tied into the war. And so this is just kind of showing us a different side of that propaganda machine. 
So not just opposing the Axis, but trying to build those allyships as well. As we get into Saludos Amigos itself, it is 42 minutes. So it's the shortest animated feature to date. I think it is only a feature on a technicality. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of the documentary segments sort of tying these shorts together, I think in a pretty decent way, actually. You know, it, it kind of opens with a map that very much reminded me of the one at the beginning of Dumbo, mm-hmm. but of South America. And then the first place that we go to is uh, Lake Titicaca. And this short features Donald Duck, which, as Megan mentioned, was the most popular character at this time, especially in South America. And it sort of just leans into, like, what if Donald Duck visited Lake Titicaca? And it just paints him as this this American tourist who wants to get some of the local flavor, I guess, as we we can say. It's basically him, like, appropriating the local culture, getting into a fight with a llama. And it's it's very short. It's I think it's well animated for what it is, but it feels... It looks even different from not just, you know, the, the heights of something like Bambi or Pinocchio, but it even looks closer to the like mickey and donald and goofy shorts of the time than it does even dumbo yeah i definitely think and this is something we'll talk about later that kind of the main characters had some good detail work but all of those background characters that we were so kind of enthused with in these earlier films are just very much like this is a sketch of a person you you can tell it's a person and that kind of diminished some of the impact of some of the explorations of culture, unfortunately. But it does give kind of a very classic, we have a classic Disney character doing comedic gags. Let's go back to the basics. Again, it's relatively short. I think for what it is, it's pretty well animated. You know, I enjoy at least the attempts of depicting like the clothing and the design of everything I think is actually fairly well done for what it is, but a few of these actually, or at least two of them, are are, are just gag-driven shorts. Mm-hmm. And so it sort of limits the cultural impression. And so, Megan, why don't you, t- you, you talk to us about uh, Pedro, the adorable little airplane. Oh, I love Pedro. Uh, it's <laughs> so not a description of that area, but that actually really has to do with the production behind it. So specifically, Richard Humer tells a story that he and Joe Grant were not on the South America trip. They were back at the studio and they came up with this short little sketch about a airplane called P.D. O'Toole. And it was just a baby plane that was making a trip around the country and was getting into danger. That obviously is a recognizable narrative arc if you are watching along with us, because Essentially, it was just completely co-opted. So uh, they said when Walt came back, he didn't have enough material for one of the South American features. So he just brought this story over and he changed it over to give it a South American setting. He now had to carry the mail over the mountains past terrible Mount Aconcagua to the coast. If you were watching it and you were going, hmm, I get less culture here. There's a reason for that. It was very much just kind of imported into their geography. So it's it's a very cute story, but it's very much not a kind of in-depth cultural exploration as we see with some of the others. And and this one reminds me of some of the other shorts that we'll see in these package films that we're covering this season later on where 
the short is basically introducing this character, giving you a little bit about them. They have an obstacle or something that they have to overcome, and then it ends, which is basically how shorts work, especially animated shorts that Disney was putting out at this time. And so it's not remarkable in terms of its inclusion here, other than some of the impact, but I do think it's it's one of the better looking ones, I think. It's probably my second favorite of these four segments overall but it's not again it doesn't nothing about it says chile to me you know with with the possible exception that there is a nice easter egg you know when when we it is revealed at the end this important piece of mail that he's been trying to carry is the postcards addressed to jorge delano who was the cartoonist in santiago who was kind of the local guide for walt and el grupo um because they one of the really interesting things about the tour is that not only did they work with local governments and you know political leaders and things, but they really got connected to the cartoonists living in the, the South American countries that they were visiting. And so the postcard is addressed to Jorge Delano and it is from Juan Carlos. Uh, and he had hosted a party in Mendoza for Walt's group before they left the Santiago. So they are at least bringing... At least, at least they're giving a nice Easter egg to reference some of the actual people that they spent time with on the trip. But that's probably the closest real connection to anything about the Goodwill tour itself. I love the Easter egg, but I also kind of hate that part of this short because they literally killed a baby or almost killed a baby for, for this postcard. And it, it kind of trivializes it just a little bit. He has this important mission that he's going to do. I mean, it's not like we've never seen a Disney film put a child in danger so far. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just, I want to keep bringing this up. Like, everyone wants to talk about, like, Disney is this child-friendly media. And this is all very traumatic. I mean, as much as it's all very cleaned up from the horrors that are, like, the grim fairy tales, these early, at least, Disney movies are not unwilling to show a small child nearly dying and his parents having to give up on ever finding his body. I mean, it uh, it's definitely willing to go pretty dark there. And then the, the third short as part of this is Algalcho Goofy, which is the Argentine short, which basically functions similar to the How to Ride a Horse short that Goofy started in The Reluctant Dragon, and then again sort of became a series. But this is, it, it's following a similar template, but again, that template hadn't really, didn't really exist yet, uh, but it feels like another step towards that series. It's basically casting Goofy and doing a, a cultural comparison of how does a cowboy dress? Well, how does a gaucho, the South American cowboy dress? And really making this sort of compare, comparison, not unfavorable necessarily. There's a little bit of exoticism to it. In terms of like, you know, and like we have all these pieces and here are the these Spanish names for them. And then this poncho that covers everything up so you can't see it anyway. But I, it is trying to show a camaraderie. This, I think this has m- maybe the most direct play at camaraderie of like, oh, look, we're not, we're not so different in <laughs> North and South America. Like we have the cowboy, they have the gaucho. However, it, it didn't exactly go over well in Argentina. So the the renowned Argentine illustrator and and friend to Walt Disney, whose work did focus on the gaucho, 
Florencio Molina Campos is said to have been upset with this segment for imposing a famous Disney character in the role of an Argentine national icon. As Smudin notes, one of our sources, quote, he found that he was a little more than a public relations window dressing at the studio because by the time he was hired to provide authenticity to the films, most of the work had already been done. And so it's interesting because I think we think of this sort of cultural appropriation narrative as being relatively new, but here it is almost 100 years ago. And it's being brought up by the people who are being appropriated. And this is kind of, you know, it's it's cute at best, but there's not really a lot of substance to this. Yeah, so I definitely think that one of the struggles, and we are going to talk about the struggles later. <laughs> if you're watching along with us, you recognize that fun 10 second non-skippable non-skippable disclaimer at the beginning. I think that they kind of had this tricky spot because the cartoon short have to be funny. And so they either have to pick on the people of South America or they have to pick on somebody else. And so I think their thought was, okay, well, if we put in our characters and they're the ones that are, you know, kind of stupid and aren't successful, I think they thought that that would be more appropriate than openly mocking South American cultures, which I agree that it's not good to to say, hey, we want to honor your culture. Let us mock everything you do. But it definitely deals with some of these issues of exoticism and appropriation that, like you said, so many people today are going to say, oh, well, why are you bringing that up? It didn't exist back then. And as, as you said, uh, we have sources to prove that it, it really did. And then the fourth segment is Aqualera do Brazil, or in English, Watercolor of Brazil. So this is this is the short where, yeah, Jose Carioca, uh, I apologize for whatever, however badly I butchered Portuguese there, also known as just Zay, uh, which is which is a cute short name. He's he's a green parrot. And so he's introduced uh, Donald returns. And the the whole idea here is that uh, Jose is showing this, you know, sort of bumbling, ignorant American Donald Duck around Brazil. And Jose comes off as this, I think, very suave, very charming uh, Brazilian character who is sophisticated and interesting. I think it's very smart that Walt insisted on native native language voices for Jose and later for Panchito, who get, who is the third caballero to be introduced in the next movie. And so Jose Oliveira was cast to voice uh jose he is uh brazilian born and so there's a bit of there's actually a bit more authenticity but this one also just has a lot more artistry there's a lot more watercolor feeling things uh there are singing flowers which feels like both a callback to flowers and trees as well as fantasia and a bit of foreshadowing of mary blair's designs for alice in wonderland that'll come back later and and to me that this is this is the only one that I would describe as like better than fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are a lot of sources that discuss the fact that they had kind of discussed the arrangement multiple times. Are we going to go in the order that we actually traveled? Are we going to move it around? And they, they more or less decided that this was the most successful, which I think most people largely agree with. And so it made the most sense to be at the last. This is also the one by and large, that does the best in actually showing the culture. So one quote from J.B. Kaufman explains that, quote, Walt was already on the right track with in-depth research on individual countries. Let other Hollywood studios commit their careless cultural mistakes, 
the Disney studio would consistently strike a responsive chord with Latin American audiences by picturing their cultures in authentic detail. And I think specifically for this one, many Latin American audiences agreed. Um, we'll talk more about the reception in, in just a moment, but this really was the one where we see cultural appreciation without some of the more dubious kind of connections that might have been in some of the earlier shorts. I think there's a big distinction here in, in my mind between this movie and Three Caballeros, which I feel like are, I feel like there, there's an attempt here of capturing. So it, it's one of those where like this feels like the shortcomings, the cultural shortcomings here feel more like a authentic swing and a miss versus when Disney is dealing with other American <laughs> subcultures that feel like they're not necessarily coming from uh, a place of in-depth research and, you know, a lack of, they're, they're not careless either, but um, <laughs> they're, you know, th this feels like Disney, this feels like everybody involved is trying to represent Latin America well, but they are fumbling because of the people who, that, you know, they're Americans in the 1940s, you know, and we'll talk a little bit more about what the perception of Latin America was in the country at the time. But I think this is one where there is an honest attempt at showing the things that they saw and appreciated about these cultures in a positive way. And just following, again, just following short by nature of who they are as, you know, as white people from the US. I mean, one of the biggest problems that is always going to be a problem that is still a huge problem in the entertainment industry is the same thing that was specifically talked about with the Argentinian short. They only had white people working on it. So it was inherently based on their perceptions of things. And then more specifically, it was primarily being drawn by white people who hadn't even been there or, or non-Latino uh, people. And so this was made worse, as were so many other things, by the aftermath of the strike. September 12th, 1941, the strike was ended, a settlement was reached, where employees would get doubled salaries, there was a fairer and kind of specific system for on-screen credits, rather than just who Walt liked that week. But the consequence was that there were going to be massive layoffs, and they had decided it would be half from the striking employees, half from the non-striking employees, which actually ended up leaving only 288 artists left. That may sound like a lot, but remember we were in the thousands before this. So this was a massive cut to the workforce. So now you have a tiny force of mostly people who were not there, so that even if we can say that this was done with the best of intentions, the, the production unfortunately, is more a, a fumble than uh, some of the triumphs that we've talked about in the earlier film. As we get to its release, we'll talk more about it. So Saludos Amigos premiered in Rio de Janeiro in August, on August 24th, 1942, uh, and then was released in the United States on February 6th, 1943. So there was definitely a negative reception politically for how poorly it represented South American cultures, uh, specifically around Pedro for not representing Chile very well. Uh, so the Chilean artist Rene Rios Bottiger uh, made his own comic, Condorito, which was much more successful than Pedro had been in that country and gave them their own cultural icon, at least, way, which is 
you know, at least a, at least a good outcome for the people of Chile. <laughs> you know, and as we said, The Three Caballeros is in some ways a sequel to this. It's at least a second a second chance on some of these things. And I think, you know, from my memory of, of watching both, there's a lot more good in that movie, at least in terms of overall quality, whether or not cultural representation we'll talk about. But there's at least more artistry in Three Caballeros than there is in Saludos Amigos. You know, just as Donald Duck had sort of, you know, gotten to the top of popularity at at Disney at this time, uh, Time Magazine went so so far as to claim that Jose Caroca became superior to Donald Duck as Donald Duck was to Mickey Mouse. And so, you know, it's kind of interesting seeing that, like, everyone's rushing to crown, like, the new Disney breakout character. And it's kind of funny seeing the way that that later inverted, that, you know, Mickey Mouse is definitely dominant again. So we kind of had the unraveling by time. Yeah, so I mean, as much as there is criticism, and there certainly was politically speaking and artistically speaking, the actual reviews and awards were a little bit complicated. Some of them were very negative, some of them were very positive, and it's a little bit complicated to try and figure out whether this was seen as a success or not. For instance, James uh, Agee or Agee of The Nation said that, quote, Disney's famous cuteness, however richly it may mirror national infantilism, is hard on my stomach. John T. McManus of the newspaper PM explained that it, quote, mingled pride and sadness over the growing up of a beloved something we all foolishly hoped could stay young forever. So whether it was that they we're just sad that Disney became political, which is certainly a message we are hearing a lot right now, or that they went political and didn't do it well, uh, there was definitely kind of a negative side to it. That being said, there were also very high positives, specifically the music, Aqua Rela do Brasil, uh, was written and performed in 1939 with minimal success. And we're going to see a very similar phenomenon to what we saw with the Nutcracker in Fantasia. After it appeared in Disney, it was a smash hit. It was an international hit and the first Brazilian song to be played over a million times on American radio. So uh, as much as there were certainly downsides, and there will be more, it was actually kind of successful in helping to kind of merge these very distinct cultures. It was also well appraised in the awards. Uh, it won Best Documentary from the National Board of Review Awards, and it was nominated for Academy Awards for Best Scoring of a Musical Picture, Best Original Song, and Best Sound Recording. So while this was definitely kind of a mixed reception, it was still considered to be a Disney success, at least so far as the awards were concerned. It didn't necessarily win all of the nominations, but it continued the trend of being nominated uh, just over and over. It didn't ruin the brand, that's for sure. And then, you know, I, I think the overall reception, like we like to track on, you know, Rotten Tomatoes, the critics that have written about it, it has an 80% score there, but the audience score is only 41%. Uh, and on IMDb, it only has a 6.1 rating. And again, it's you know, most of our sources, we were talking about this before we started recording, but most of our sources and even the Blu-ray just pair this with the Three Caballeros. And so sometimes it's hard to single out one from the other, but I do think 
it's worth separating them, uh, at least the way that we're going through, because of the chronology and sort of trying to follow the production, because the production feels like it's going to be different, even though I haven't done my full research on, on Three Caballeros as of yet. So put a pin in that and we'll come back to it. It it was sort of successful as part of the the good neighbor policy, you know, from the FDR administration. So film historian Alfred Charles Richard Jr., has commented that Saludos Amigos, quote, did more to cement a community of interest between the peoples of the Americas in a few months than the State Department had in 50 years. I don't know if that's high praise of the movie or a strong criticism of the State Department's efforts, but there is certainly, there was a negative reaction, but there was also a positive reaction. And I think especially the sense that I got in the sources that I was looking looking at is it certainly changed it certainly had an effect on the way that Americans thought about South America, maybe more than the way that South Americans thought about the United States. Uh, but many people in the U.S. had not seen actual footage of South American cities before. And so they were surprised that there were like skyscrapers and cars and it looked, it looked very much like cities that we have here. And so I think the documentary footage, I think it's interesting pairing the two because I think the documentary footage actually was the thing that maybe changed people's minds and the shorts were kind of like the reason to get them in the door because like oh we're going to see donald duck and goofy and then oh accidentally we learned some things that we didn't know so this is maybe also the origin of not only disney making more documentaries as we're going to be talking about but also things like epcot where it's like it's a theme park but it's educational so like you can justify taking your kids there (laughs) yeah i definitely think that there was this kind of mission to change minds in in maybe subtle ways i i do think that the live action footage does it far more successfully than the animation does because the animation tends to focus on very rural areas but something that was discussed with this you know on the one hand it did great things for um you know reminding people that people in south america or teaching them altogether that they had civilization on par with the United States. It also showed some of these just gorgeous landscapes that people don't think about. It's been critiqued some for the fact that it didn't show the downsides of South America, because it made it so that South America was this kind of interesting tidbit that people could learn about without having to care about, rather than maybe doing kind of advocacy work. That being said, if it was a movie that was entirely about the poverty in South America, that would have done the opposite of their goal. So there's kind of some some struggles in the fact that they were trying to accomplish several different missions here. They were trying to establish Disney and Hollywood as being relevant in South America. They were trying to establish South America to the American population, but in a way that was interesting but not scary they didn't want to spread any perceptions that you know the south americans are so sophisticated that they're going to come kill us all that was very much not the message they were going for so in trying to walk this kind of three-tiered tightrope there were definitely some stumbles along the way and some interesting successes like many Disney films in this era, you know, there's been a little bit of censorship, especially because you can't have Goofy smoking a cigarette anymore. These are the things that we've lost. I love that. And so <laughs> it's only in one scene. I mean, it's fine if Donald and Jose have a drink, apparently, but cigarettes are, are, are too much. 
So it was edited for VHS and DVD, and then it was restored in the bonus feature on the Walton El Grupo documentary DVD release, and then on the 75th anniversary Blu-ray that has both Saludos Amigos and the Three Caballeros, it was restored. And it is now on Disney+, Plus, which is one of the reasons for the unskippable disclaimer on there. So if you want to see Goofy briefly smoking a cigarette, you can. I don't even think that I would have noticed it without the disclaimer. So, you know, there's something to be said there. And as for its overall legacy, Three Caballeros is a big part of it as well as there's there's more legacy with the Three Caballeros as a whole that, that we'll be talking about when we get to that episode. Uh, but Pedro, our favorite little airplane, does have a small cameo in Who Framed Roger Rabbit where he's flying alongside Dumbo towards the end of the movie, which is a nice little touch. Uh, Walton El Grupo is a 2008 documentary uh, which is also on Disney+. Plus. If you haven't watched it and you enjoyed this movie, I would recommend checking it out mainly about the Goodwill tour with a little bit of the making of Saludos Amigos and the Three Caballeros kind of tacked on. Uh, That documentary was directed by Frank Thomas's son, Theodore. It's like an hour and 50 minutes. It's either it's (laughs) with that runtime. I feel like it should have covered more. So it just sort of establishes like, this is why they went on this trip. This is what it was like on this trip. And these are the things that came out of the trip. And there's not as much actual, like, how did they get from the material they collected into creating these specific four shorts? But there's a lot more documentary footage included. And, you know, it feels very much like a second generation documentary. So it's talking to Disney's children and the other children of the people who were on the trip. And they're like, oh, yeah, I remember, like, you know, my aunt came over and watched us for like three months (laughs) while my parents were away. And they read letters that were sent back from South America to, you know, the spouses that and children who were not able to come on the trip. And so it it does give some more background. And it is pretty, it's somewhat interesting. There's also some interviews with people in South America and talking a little bit more about the cultural impact. That feels a little more a little more surface level to me, but it does show how that Snow White was extremely popular in South America at the time because there are people who, you know, were kids or remember, you know, their parents being younger and like being introduced to Snow White when it came out. And I think there's also there's a really good interview towards the end of the documentary that talks about the quality of Saludos Amigos and the the quote that I pulled is they gagged it up. And I think that sums up a lot of, you know, what Megan was sort of speaking to earlier, specifically, I think, in the Donald at Lake Titicaca and the Goofy as the Gaucho shorts are very much gag based and they are very much let's put our characters in South America and, you know, do our the funny gags that we usually do with them, uh, which I think gives away to mixed results. Pedro is less gag based, but but again, doesn't really feel like it represents Chile. And then the watercolor of Brazil is the only one that really, I think, stands above as something special and unique that wouldn't have really come about without this trip to South America. This isn't really legacy, but it's just on the point of documentaries. For those who enjoyed this film, this podcast, potentially the 2008 documentary, there is another documentary, although it is not on Disney+, Plus, called South of the Border with Disney. This actually came out a couple months prior to Saludos Amigos, but it does not count as a feature uh, because it was only 32 minutes. But this actually included even more of the behind the scenes kind of documentary live action 
including when the group visited Uruguay or Uruguay and Bolivia. Uh, the group continues through Ecuador, Colombia, Venezuela, Guatemala, Mexico. So you really do get some of these other explorations. But because that's not on streaming, because it didn't have the animation and these classic characters, that is even more forgotten than any of this other stuff is. So there is other footage if you really want to dive deep, but it is relatively hard to find these days. Yeah, and that was made, like, I don't think that ever got a commercial release so much as it was sort of toured through various channels by the coordinator of inter-american affairs so they would just like set up like a special screening of it somewhere it wasn't a thing that you would like necessarily go and buy a ticket purchase it it's not on disney plus it is on the dvd of saludos amigos as a bonus feature but it's not on the blu-ray which is annoying because that's the that's the (laughs) copy i have or i would have watched it but if you do want to track it down, it's it's out there. It's just not as readily available for, you know, reasons only known to Bob Iger, I guess. This is kind of just an interesting film as a whole to talk about because there are so many layers to it. Because we have all of this history. We have all of these different angles. We have the live action. We have the animation. And as we mentioned before, what that came down to is there are things in this movie that are not acceptable, um, at least by modern times, and in fact, in their own time in certain ways. This is primarily down to racism and caricatures, but there are kind of several different ways that we can talk about it. And I think that it is important to acknowledge that while this was relatively successful in many ways, it did still have failings, and there are things that we should try to do better in the future. Despite the fact that this is overwhelmingly a positive presentation of these uh, countries, uh, it tended to trivialize and especially infantilize the populations that it was trying to portray. This is a very common problem with external ethnographers, whether you're talking documentaries, actual academic literature. If you are not part of the culture, you cannot represent the culture in all of its beauty. This is one of the reasons why, to this day, when whether we're talking about film, television, books, there's a lot of discussion about who should be able to tell the story. And the fact that this story was told exclusively by white citizens of the U.S., the vast majority of whom had not even visited, meant that they did a lot of things that really do fall along those stereotypical lines. One of the big ones is this exoticization and primitivization. We see in the live action footage that, you know, they have one of the biggest cities in the world. And then all we're seeing in the animation is these very rural kind of deserted areas, these arguably kind of old styles of how do we create a boat? How do we create a bridge? And essentially what they did, as was quoted in one of our sources, The image of the exotic other is captured by a familiar character, rendered unthreatening through cultural appropriation, and then repackaged for international consumption as a Hollywood product by a studio that represents the best of American capitalism. That's academies, I know, but essentially what it's saying is, rather than this being something that really presented the culture, it took the culture and twisted it into what Hollywood and the U.S. government wanted it to be. 
this is a political film as much as it isn't as kind of overt as maybe some of the ones we'll talk about later. And it has consequences for that. The U.S. was not trying to say that South America is on par or better than us. And it rings throughout it that even when we have these characters like Donald and Goofy, who are just so, so incompetent, it still comes across as they are incompetent at this primitive culture and and kind of way of living. Yeah, and I think it, especially with the Lake Titicaca segment, it doesn't it doesn't really distinguish between oh, this is the traditional version versus this is the current version. And I think you know, I think that's a big problem. The whole tone, I think especially of those two shorts in particular. Again, the problem with Pedro is that it's not it doesn't have enough culture in it at all <laughs> other than some geographical references, but I think especially with the first Donald segment and the Goofy segment, it's really told from a tone of, you know, us and them, us being the the US and, you know, potentially Europe, the, the north, the north and them being Latin America. And so because Disney's making this, they define them to everybody involved. And so I think, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see if, when they did dub this in Portuguese and Spanish, how much of that actually maybe changed. I would actually love to know that, but I didn't, I couldn't find anything about that in particular. But especially when you watch it in English, it's, it's, it is very much, it feels especially dated in the way that it is like, oh, look, look at these, look at these sort of funny things that these people do. And again, the way that the, especially the human characters are drawn with the lower quality animation here really just lends itself to caricature in ways that are not acceptable. And then Megan, I think your point earlier about how especially those two segments are both very rural in part, probably because of cost savings. It doesn't take as much effort to draw a, a like a prairie landscape or, you know, a, a bridge with just the sky behind it than it does a bustling city like Rio de Janeiro. And so I think all of these things combine together to give this really mixed picture of South America in the animated segments. But I do think that e even with the sort of us, us and them kind of tone of the whole thing, you know, as we've been saying, the documentary segments are one, both very interesting. And two, I think actually tell the story better from a better place a little bit. And this is much more my thought than this point. But now we do have some more Latino Latinx representation in Disney. And a lot of that is done surprisingly well, but we do see some of these problems still showing up. So one thing that I've specifically been thinking about is Encanto, which is amazing. It, it's a great movie. It's going to be like 20 years before we get to talk about it, but I highly recommend you watch Encanto. It is, is beautiful. It really works with the culture in so many great ways. But one of the specific things that I remember reading in the background is they have the kind of village that is cut off from the rest of the world, and it is set in this very past-focused setting. So again, going down to that, you know, this is still a somewhat primitive village. And in one of the deleted scenes, they were going to have Abuela and Mirabel go into another city, and we were going to see that there are small villages and, you know, bustling cities that are just as, you know, sometimes terrifying and sometimes impressive as 
you know, U.S. cities. And again, we see that kind of dichotomy of what happens when we don't show how modern and how advanced these cultures are. So again, I think that's another thing that we can just be tracing, that some of these problems have been solved in beautiful, beautiful ways, and some of them are still there. And there are probably some that we aren't even aware of yet. And it's just a matter of being conscious as we continue to grow as audience members, and hopefully as Disney grows as a company that has such international impact on these representations. This is going to sound like a weird side tangent at the start, but I'm very excited for, as we're recording this in a few weeks, the second season of Star Wars Visions is going to be released, which, for those of you who have not seen it, is a series of shorts that you know, they are, the stories themselves are maybe not canon within the larger Star Wars universe, but Lucasfilm has given, has worked with other animation studios around the world to let them tell a Star Wars story in their style of animation. And a lot of them, you know, are, a lot of in the first season came from Japan and they had very much, you know, they, they felt like other anime, anime that I had seen in terms of bringing that cultural language into the world of Star Wars and blending them together. But again, this is being told from their perspective, not Lucasfilm's perspective as an American company trying to like, oh, let's make a Star Wars that looks like this. It's coming from the opposite way of, let me take my art form and blend it with Star Wars. Like it, it, it's coming from that, that way. And if, you know, Walt had had the foresight or the interest or, you know, the circumstances were different at the time and had brought in all of these wonderful South American cartoonists that they had met to either actively consult or take the lead on some of these shorts, they would have been much better off for that. And I think that's an interesting model that maybe Disney could return to in the future. I know they've been doing stuff with Pixar has a short series where they give sort of their, you know, more junior animators the opportunity to tell a story that doesn't necessarily have to be for kids. You know, there's one that talks about uh, being a woman in the workplace. And, you know, it's a very personal story about a topic in the culture. And I think, I think there's ways to do this that are both more interesting to the audience and also less likely to fall into this like well we wanted to celebrate this culture but we aren't in this culture and we can't really get there properly that's a lesson i want to bring home i want to see more in the entertainment industry i'm not saying that everybody who worked on this was a bad person some of them may have been some of them may have been going with the best intentions and the errors can be a combination of implicit biases and just genuinely not knowing. People make mistakes. That's perfectly fine. Uh, it's not, you know, a moral uh, judgment against them. But what it means is, if you don't have someone there who can catch that kind of mistake, you are going to have a flawed product. And I think that, you know, if we see Disney trying to go back to this and really show how much they've grown, the biggest thing that they can do is, again, Bring the people in question into the room. Don't tell their stories for them. And that way we can avoid some of these innocent mistakes, as well as perhaps the more intentional, deeply problematic angles that might have been put in by those who did have stronger racism, xenophobia, etc. And I think along with Encanto, uh, Moana is also a really good example, which, you know, it is set in a time period, but 
Disney did make a lot of outreach and overtones to uh, traditional Hawaiians as well as uh, Polynesian people in general to kind of learn their stories, at least, you know, bring them along for the creation process, being involved to, to various degrees, but it was at least a big step in the right direction. And I think that shows in, in the final product. I'm sure there are things that are not perfect. I'm sure there are people in those cultures who don't like that movie, which is perfectly acceptable. That's their that's their right to have their opinion. But there's a sense of respect, I think, that's in Moana that isn't here for the most part. The other just point I wanted to make is that uh, I noticed that the voiceover kept referring to the tour group as boys, uh, despite Mary Blair probably being the most productive and getting the most out of this trip as anybody on it. So I think that is also worth noting that just that erasure of just calling them boys was just just a weird choice, I thought. There's just this tone of, I'm sure there's a name for it, andronormativity is what I'm going to come up with, that just male is the base state. And I think that just this one, I actually don't think was intended to be offensive. I think they were just oblivious. They just truly did not even remember that there was a woman, despite how many times she was on screen. Still the only woman in the credits, despite the fact that there were other women who worked on the project. And I'm not necessarily excusing that, but I think that, again, we're seeing that, you know, when the men are the ones writing the script. It could be an innocent mistake. It could not be. But look at who we left out once again. And as we said, her name becomes so, so significant in the future that it's a little bit more obvious that her input was kind of downplayed in this movie, uh, knowing where she goes from here. Uh, absolutely. And that that is very much part of the Mary Blair story, I think, uh, overall, unfortunately. You know, we've given a lot of, I think, our thoughts as we've gone through this. Just a couple other points that we wanted to both make sure that we cover. Again, it's interesting to me in, in, in thinking about how easy it is for us to see what other parts of the world look like now and how, you know, in the 1940s, you had to rely on like newsreels or documentaries or, or other things to get even a glimpse into other parts of the world and other cultures. And so I just think it's interesting to see how far globalization has come in, you know, it since, since the 1940s, but it, it is funny to me, not like haha funny, but I guess it's, it's a little ironic that, you know, there's a lot more, there are a lot more people living in South America who could whistle or sing along to the songs from Snow White than there were Americans who knew that there were cities that existed in South America. God, that's awful. Yeah, that's that's such a good point. And I think kind of the hand in hand with this, you know, we see that that globalization and the connectivity and the growing of connectivity. And I think that another thing that we definitely see here, and we'll talk about this a little bit more when we go into the US joining World War II, is that this was also Disney and the United States actively putting their stamp on other parts of the world uh, by the fact that we had these very classic Mickey Mouse characters of Donald and Goofy here. I, I don't think that it was just that, you know, those were the characters they had. They've made up plenty of characters before. They are explicitly tying their characters into these cultures. And we'll see that Mickey Mouse becomes a face 
that is spray painted onto tanks to suggest, hey, everyone, it's okay. The Americans are here. All of these various uh, classic characters start to get kind of drafted into the narrative that America is going to save you because we have Mickey Mouse on our side. And that's something that very much happened with American culture, specifically in World War II and the Cold War. I specifically remember that I watched a film that was made set in East Berlin that discussed the importance of Coca-Cola as a symbol of the West and of democracy. That when, you know, the Berlin Wall fell, they saw their first billboard of Coca-Cola and they knew that everything was going to be okay. Which, this is a German-made film. This was not uh, made here, but it follows that same line of, like, Coca-Cola, Mickey Mouse, and these, like, classic figures become the stamp of America and really democracy in so many ways during these two major kind of internationalization periods of America's history. For a second there, I thought you were describing Billy Wilder's One, Two, Three, which is a movie I love and is very much is set in Germany and is very much about Coca-Cola uh, and the East East West German divide. But it, it it's before the the wall fell. I highly recommend you check it out. I think you'll it's it's a, it's very much a farce about two kids getting married, but the father, I think of the the woman is like the Coca-Cola representative for like West Berlin. <laughs> And uh, you should definitely check it out if you, if you haven't seen it. It's it's very funny and I think would, would jive with your interests very much. Awesome. I'll have to. I see in our notes that we each have at least one more just kind of funny comment in here. So would you like to share your just like, what did you enjoy in this movie? And overall, like, like I said, I, the, uh, you know, watercolor of Brazil or the, uh, Aquilera do Brazil, uh, segment, I think is just genuinely, genuinely wonderful. I really enjoy it. It's very fun to look at. I always, you know, the, anytime a, a cartoon is animating someone drawing a thing, I'm very apt to just respond well to that, you know, sort of like that famous Donald Duck short duck a monk where you know the, the it's revealed at the end that Bugs Bunny is the one sort of drawing Donald into all of these or Donald and Daffy into all of these crazy situations and so seeing you know like the paintbrush making like oh here's here's the bushes and here's the water flowing it, it's just very fun to look at and and very rewarding uh but of all the gags in the movie the only one that I truly truly loved was in the Pedro short uh where he's in the school and there's like a airplane skeleton that looks like it's made out of bones it's just a pure visual gag it is not based on any sort of culture or whatever but it's just like the you know it's what if there was a plane that was anthropomorphized it would have bones like a person has bones obviously and it just it's it's just struck it strikes me as very funny anytime i've seen it uh, anytime i've seen it uh and of course a, a presage to the entire cars franchise uh, which again we'll talk about eventually, but <laughs> in twenty years or so. Yeah, I am both delighted and horrified by that gag. I I just remember seeing that image and going, "That's terrifying." I, also, it makes no anatomical sense. Not that that should matter, but but it's kind of horrifying to imagine that like the edges of planes are like bones. 
as we're in World War Two. I'm like, I don't want to think about all of the planes blowing up and their bones shattering <laughs> everywhere. That's fair. Okay, so my my big thought is that the the animation is is pretty good in certain segments, but the voice was so boring. Uh, this is just going to be me like uh, being the annoying child, but this was this is literally the shortest feature film in all of Disney history. And it felt like it went on forever as soon as that voice started speaking because it was just such like a drone. It was, I mean, it was intended as a parody of like these travel videos, but it ended up just kind of doing the thing that it was mocking. So that's, that's my gripe. The thing that I kind of enjoyed, and I'm not able to find it in the script right now, but at some point, and I'm going to say a scene and it's not going to be accurate, but I believe... Donald swallows a butterfly at one point, and then it has to, like, hop out of his mouth or something. Maybe Goofy swallows it. I can't quite remember. But all all I was thinking back to was, ah, the Bambi team got that gag in there after all. (laughs) And I just wonder how many times these stories that were in production or, or, you know, some of the ones we've talked about that literally weren't made for, you know, 50 years, 90 years, many times did they just slide some of those scenes into these other movies there there weren't any like fun phrases or anything that originated here but i do kind of see like elements of earlier films that were cut or that were really successful like you said with the dumbo map i'm like okay we have moved from books to maps starting the movies how is this gonna flow so there were there was a lot of interesting connectivity to it where it was kind of like okay this is what we have to do because the government's paying for it, but let's let's take some of these ideas that we had and kind of run with them anyway. And sometimes that was really successful. Obviously, it was less successful with Pedro because it's a great sketch, but it's nothing about Chile. And I think overall, like I don't I don't want to say like desperate, but this does feel like it was like okay, we have here's the number of people we have. We have to make this because the government has already said they're going to pay for it if it doesn't work. So, like, you know, just full steam ahead. It it feels, you know, we talked about Dumbo being a quick production because it was, like, locked in place. Like, they worked through all the things and then they just executed. Where this feels more sketchy mm-hmm. overall in the sense of, like, all right, we're trying to put this thing together. We're all working on these shorts. And then all right, we're going to get some footage from the trip and like package it all together and hope that it works. And, you know, in some ways that leads to more experimentation as we'll see. And in other ways, you know, it leaves this kind of feeling, you know, almost like a nothing movie in, in some ways. I mean, as much as we've discussed legacy, I think the biggest thing to say is that this is not a movie that most people have heard of. Mm-hmm. Whether you are in the 80% uh, critical approval or the 60% audience approval, it, it's just not very well known. And that'll be true for most of the things we're going to talk about for the next few episodes. And, and with that, Megan, I think you can take us out. Next time on Dream with Mind and Heart, we will be looking at Disney's role in World War II, including feature-length propaganda film, Victory Through Air Power. Yeah, and uh, unfortunately that... Uh, Victory Through Our Power is not on Disney Plus, so if you are following along with it, you will have to find 
other means to get to it. Uh, there's a Disney Treasures DVD called On the Front Lines, which I think is the most recent legally available release uh, that I picked up on eBay a few weeks ago. But I'm sure it is out there in the wilds of the internet if you go looking for it. There's always a way to find something. Honestly, so many interesting things coming up, as much as it's names that you have probably never heard of. That being said, in the meantime, you can always email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, DreamMindHeart, and on Instagram at DreamWithMindAndHeart. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. And thank you to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork and Honey Badger's folk for our theme song.